Well, hello. It's great to, uh, to see you in the studio. It's great to know that many of you are watching online. And I'm really excited this morning to be kicking off this new teaching series. We're going to be learning together, as Andrew said, from the book of Philippians. This is one of the happiest and richest letters that has ever been written. And I don't know for sure, but I would bet good money that from this letter there have been more fridge magnets and greeting cards put, on, um, put, on our, put in our homes, saying these famous verses that many of us will know. And on a personal level, as I've been reading this letter in the last few weeks, it has encouraged my heart so much in who Jesus is and the life that he has called me to live. So I'm really looking forward to studying together from this letter. It's a letter written by Paul to a church that he started in Philippi, and he writes it along with his apprentice, Timothy. It's written firstly for Paul to say, thank you so much for the financial support that you've been giving me, but secondly, to encourage them in their walk with Jesus. And I think it's a brilliant letter for us to be looking at as we come out of lockdown, as we reset, as we rethink, as we recalibrate our lives, as we start again, as we have to make decisions about what we're going to pick up and what we're going to lay down, what things we're going to start again and what things we're going to drop. It's a brilliant letter that helps us think about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be part of his church. And so I think it'll be really helpful for us to look at over the next few weeks. At its centre, it has this beautiful and famous poem celebrating Jesus, who being in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This letter is about Jesus. We're studying it because we want to know more about Jesus, and we'll get to that specific poem in just a few weeks. But surrounding that poem are then a series of teachings or encouragements where Paul and Timothy encourage the church to emulate Jesus, to be humble, to serve like he did, to emulate his attitude that we just read about in that poem. For example, he tells us to prefer others above ourselves. He tells us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says to value one another above yourself. And it is a letter characterized maybe most of all by joy. Just 13 times in a few short pages, Paul talks about joy or happiness. It's why we've called this series Finding Joy Wherever You Are. In chapter one, Paul looks for, celebrates with joy because this church is still partnering with him in the gospel. In chapter two, he looks forward joyfully to the day that he will see them again. And in chapter three, and then again in chapter four, he says those famous words, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. And I don't know, know about you, but, but I want to be happy. I want to be joyful. I want to live a happy life. And, and whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, that might be something that you can agree with me on. I don't know if you've ever stopped to wonder, what is it that would make me happy? Because lots of us spend a lot of time chasing success, but studies say that actually success doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. And a, a quick look at the lives of successful people would probably tell you the same. A lot of us spend lots of our time worrying about money and trying to earn more of it. But again, studies say that there's a basic level of income that we need to be content in life. But beyond that, there's very little relationship between what we earn and how happy we are. 
And so if those things don't bring happiness, what does? What does Paul have to say to us? Well, as we'll see, neither Paul's happiness nor his instruction, his encouragement to this church to be happy are grounded in the circumstances in which these people find themselves. Because actually, Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. And prison's not a particularly pleasant place today, but even less so in the first century. And we don't know exactly which prison Paul was in um, at this point in his life. There have been different, um, different experiences of prisons that he had. But we know from Paul's experience that he's been flogged, stoned, beaten. We know in this letter that there are people taking advantage of the fact that he's in prison. We know as well that there's a death sentence over his head. And yet still in these things, Paul says to be happy, to rejoice. I imagine him in chains or in the stocks after a long night in a cold prison, maybe with cramps, maybe hungry. And he's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So what's Paul's secret? How come in verse four, in chapter 4 he can say, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty, but I've learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. How did he find happiness? How can we find joy wherever we are? Well, let's open this letter and see what Paul has to say. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is a letter from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And it is right for me to feel that way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The first thing that we learn from this letter is that Paul, in prison, under attack, a death sentence over his head, finds joy because he and the church in Philippi are still in a brilliant relationship together. They are partnering together, working together to advance, to announce, to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he's risen from the dead, and that he is now the true king of the world. Loneliness is seen by many as one of the biggest concerns we face in this country. Nearly half half of the adult population report to being lonely, at least occasionally, if not more. Half a million elderly people don't see someone for five or six days a week. And on the flip side, the Harvard study of adult development, just as an example, followed hundreds of men for more than 70 years and found that the happiest and the healthiest were those that had cultivated strong relationships with people they trusted to support them. And actually, this is the first thing that Paul teaches us as well, nearly 2,000 years before those studies came out, that we find true joy when we have true relationships. He finds joy in prison because he is still partnering together with this church. We see it right here in verse one. 
Paul isn't writing to individuals, but to a church. He addresses the overseers or elders or shepherds, as they're sometimes called, and the deacons. Those are the two leadership roles in a first century church. And that is to whom Paul is writing. And I recognize that I'm probably preaching to the choir, given we're 15 months into lockdown and you're still watching church online. But it's worth saying again, it is so important if you are a follower of Jesus to be part of a local church, to care for one another, to be cared for, to learn together, to discuss things together, to work out life. You know, my wife and I have lived in several different places since we've been married, but our story in each has been the same. We have been part of a church that, although never perfect and often frustrating, has brought us such joy because we have found friends and we have found leaders who encourage us in our walk with Jesus, who encourage us to be the people that God has made us to be. We love being part of the church. And I think Paul feels the same way. I don't know if you noticed in verse 8 this sensational thing that he said. He said, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is one of those verses that I've read many times but never really noticed what it was saying. Paul says that I, I yearn for you, I long for you, I feel the emotions for you, church in Philippi, the same affection that Jesus Christ feels for you. That is what I feel for you. And it reminds us of a couple of amazing things. Firstly, that Jesus is affectionate towards us, that he doesn't just love us or like us because he has to, not doesn't just do it all because he's God and that's the thing that he has to do, but he feels affection for us. Today, he feels affection towards you. But it reminds us as well that as a church, we can be characterized by those same relationships, that same strength of feeling. And I don't know about you, but after 15 months apart, I am starting to feel a little bit disconnected from people that I used to know pretty well. I maybe at times I think I could get used to being a little bit more isolated, doing a few more Sunday morning in my pajamas on the sofa. But I want to know greater affection for the people of God. I want to know the security and the joy of having people around me who feel that way for me, who will support me, who will look out for me. And you might hear that and you think, that is a total pipe dream. I look at the people around the church, I look at the people in my life, and there is no way that I could feel like Jesus does for them. You might look at me this morning and think, I don't even know how Jesus feels that way about him. But the church in Philippi, I'm sure, felt the same at times. They came from a diverse background. There have been times when they got on each other's nerves, but they built relationships over time, such that Paul can now write to them and says, I feel the same affection that Jesus feels for you. And friends, that's what we can find in church. It takes all of us to do it. We need to be patient, we need to forgive, we, we need to love. But in my experience, and in Paul's experience, I think it is worth it. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to dust off your diaries, to clean up the barbecues, and to get ready to build relationships once again, to do walks, to do playdates, to spend time together in relationship. The second thing we learn from this passage is that these relationships are not just social, but this is a group of people who are doing something together. They find great joy in service. Paul says in verse 4, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. As we've already read, Paul was in prison at this point. And in the first century, in prison, if you didn't get financial support from your friends, you didn't eat. But this church had supported him both in his prison, um, when he was in prison, and also when he was in ministry. Later in the letter, he says, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. And we know a little bit from the book of Acts what this church in Philippi was like. Paul started it as he began his journey into Greece. The first convert was a businesswoman called Lydia. 
Another convert was a jailer from the prison in which Paul found himself. And this diverse group of people, from businesswomen to jailer, have come together and they have supported Paul from the very first day, he says. Like many churches in the first century, these groups from all over, from all different walks of life, have come together with a shared mission, with a shared purpose to advance the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but again, coming out of lockdown, there's part of me that thinks about serving, thinks about partnering again together in the gospel, thinks about some of the things that I used to do but haven't had the opportunity or hadn't had the need to do over the last 12, 14, 13, 14 months. And I, think a li- I feel a little bit nervous about doing it. I feel a little bit like I need to exercise again after, for the first time in a long while and I can see my trainers on the floor but I just don't want to pick the, put them on. I think that's going to be an awful lot of hard work. But I know it's the right thing to do. I know it's good for me. I know it's good for those around me. And I want to encourage you as you're rethinking life, as you're reprioritizing coming out of this season, to ask yourself the question, where is it and how is it that you want to partner together with this church or the church that you're a part of in the gospel, in proclaiming the good news of Jesus? Maybe you want to join up with our children's team to to invest and teach the next generation. Maybe you want to be a part of the tech team, the growing tech team, or the worship team. Maybe you want to be involved in the Alpha course and, and serve in there. But whatever it is, I want to encourage you to think about how you want to partner together in the gospel. I was listening to someone speaking this week, imagining the disciples on that first Easter Sunday when they were locked down in a living room, when it was just them and their very closest friends, and they might have been tempted to stay there. They might have thought, you know what, it's probably going to be easier for us if we stay together, if we just keep in good relationship with one another and with Jesus, but they didn't. They were brave. They opened the door. They ventured out, and they started what is now the greatest mission of all time. They took the hope and the good news of Jesus to every corner of the earth. And we find ourselves in a similar situation. We've been locked down. We've found ourselves stuck in our living room. And we can either stay there or we can pick up the baton and continue this great mission that is yet to be finished, this race that is still to be run. And I want to encourage you because you will find great joy in partnering together with one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, this morning, Paul finds great joy in the assurance of knowing that God will finish what he started. In verse 6, Paul says, I always pray with joy, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, this church in Philippi are not just a social group, and they're not just a group of friends together on a mission, but they are a group of people in whom Jesus Christ is doing an amazing work of transformation that Paul is confident will continue for all of their lives. The day of Christ that Paul mentions is the day that Jesus returns. We read about it in the Old Testament. Jesus speaks about it. Paul speaks about it. It's the day when when Jesus will come back, when Paul says that God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who were troubled, when he will punish those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, but be glorified and marveled at among those who believe. It's a day when God will judge. We read in the book to Corinth that in the letter to the church in Corinth, that it's a day when our works will be revealed for what they are. But Paul writes to this church, having seen the fruit of of faith in Jesus in their lives, and he is confident. He says, I know that God is going to complete what he started, that on that day when Jesus returns, you will end up on the right side of that judgment. And that is something to be incredibly happy about. If you're a follower of Jesus, If you trust in him, if your life is starting to show, however small, the evidence of that faith, 
then you can be confident that because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross and what he secured when he rose again, you have a glorious future ahead of you. No matter what challenges this life may throw at you, in the things that matter most, in the way that Almighty God sees you, and in the verdict that will be spoken over your life on the day that he returns, in those things, as the hymn says, it is well. It is well with your soul. You are a new person. You have new life. You are a new creation. And that is something that brings us great joy. But as well as bringing us joy, I think it is something that motivates us to go on. Because there's one train of thought, isn't there, that, that says, well, 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 Paul says that God is going to do this, that, that he's going to complete what he started, and Paul's confident of that, so I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to put my feet up knowing that, you know, God's going to do everything that he said he would. But that's not how Paul responds in this letter. Even this morning we read, didn't we, that Paul prays. He says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He knows it's going to happen, but that never stops him praying for them. It doesn't stop him expecting that their lives may become pure and blameless. And actually, as we go through this letter in chapter two, for example, he'll say, continue to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you will be blameless and pure. In chapter three, he writes his own, about his own experience. He says, not that I've already obtained all this, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And the illustration that Paul uses that I think helps us best understand this is adoption. How can it be true that something we are, we're confident about something will already happen, yet at the same time we're praying for it and we're working towards it? Well, imagine a five-year-old or a six-year-old child that's had a difficult first few years in life but has been adopted into a wonderful family. You could say on the one hand that they now have a new life, they have a new identity, that because of who their parents are, the, circ the circumstances they now find themselves in, that, that you're confident that God's going to finish what he starts, that by the time that person's 18 or, or 19, that, that God would have done a good thing in them. But at the same time, you would be praying for that child, wouldn't you? And if you knew them, you might be encouraging them to, to live life now consistent and being a part of their new family, not to let the things that have happened to them in the past get in the way, to live out their new identity. I think that's the same for us if we are Christians. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, you are a new creation, you are a new person, you've been taken from death into life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have a great and glorious future. You can look confidently to the, the day when Jesus Christ returns. And that can bring you joy, but it also motivates us to be the people that we have been made to be, to put off our old selves and put on our new selves, to live lives that are consistent with our new identity, to live a life worthy of the gospel, as Paul writes in this letter. And part of doing that might be what we've already spoken about today. It might be partnering together in service, working together in the gospel, but there might be more personal things that you want to think about too. It might be that over the last 12 months you found it difficult to read the Bible and to pray. Why don't you use this next eight weeks to, to get deeper into this short and immensely practical letter about what it means to follow Jesus? Or maybe you're just looking in, you're not a follower of Jesus, but you want to be part of community, you want to know relationships. Well, I want to encourage you to come and be part of what we do here at the Beacon Church. You can come here to the studio by emailing hello at beaconchurch.co.uk and booking yourself in 
or in a few weeks' time when hopefully we'll be meeting together, all of us at the Village Hotel in Farnborough. We would love to see you there. We would love um, to meet you, to get to know you, to, to be in relationship together, to be exploring what it might mean to follow Jesus. And church family, I am also looking forward to seeing you there too. So let's get ready. Let's get the alarm clock set. Be prepared to get dressed earlier, get the kids in the car. It's stressful, I know, but it's so worth it. I'm so excited to be together, to sing together, to learn from this letter, to encourage one another, and to find joy in partnership, in our relationships, in our service, in the work that God is doing with us as we partner together in this great mission of Jesus. Matt, I hand back over to you.